Today's episode is brought to you by trainedup.church. You know, one of the most critical responsibilities we have as ministry leaders is to train our volunteers, equipping the saints for ministry. But it can be really frustrating as well, can't it? We have to find a date and a time and a location that works for everybody. And then, of course, it doesn't actually work for everybody. So what do you do with the folks who can't make it? And then when someone joins the church next month and wants to start volunteering, do you do the training all over again? After a while, all that time and the pizza lunches really start to add up. It was an answer to this challenge that Scott Magdalene and his team built Trained Up. Scott himself was an executive pastor and realized that online video courses were a flexible and powerful way to capture training once and deliver it to an unlimited number of volunteers at their convenience. Trained Up has an extensive library of training videos and courses you can share with your team, but even more importantly, they give you the ability to film and upload your own training videos and courses to ensure that the language, concepts, and details are right for your church. You can even add a quiz at the end to make sure people are paying attention while they watch. It can be as simple as using your own computer's webcam or the camera on your phone, but if video isn't your thing, you can hire their production team to create a professional quality video using your content. Check out Trained Up today by heading over to trainedup.church. Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Dalton Rushing, the senior pastor at Decatur First United Methodist Church in Decatur, Georgia. Dalton joins us today to talk about a topic that we've all probably experienced or will experience at some point in our career, and that's preaching through a spiritually dry season. Well, my guest today is Reverend Dalton Rushing. He's the senior pastor at Decatur First United Methodist Church in Decatur, Georgia. Dalton, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Well, why don't we begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Be happy to. Um, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I am not from Georgia originally. Uh, in fact, didn't really go to church growing up much. I um, We went to an evangelical church to the extent that we went, and then when the pastor left, my parents didn't like the new guy. I must have been like, I don't know, eight. And so we left and didn't really go back. So I don't have much of a church background uh, until I uh, got to college. and went to Birmingham Southern College, which is the United Methodist School. Uh, got involved in religious life there because the services were on Monday, and I needed something to help me atone for my weekend at the fraternity house. Yeah. Um, I met my wife there. Uh, she's also uh, now a pastor. When we graduated from Birmingham Southern, we went to uh, Candler at uh, the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Uh, we were uh, commissioned and ordained together. I'm now serving at Decatur First, uh, where I have been for, I don't know, five minutes now, like a month and a half. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm actually in a very interesting appointment. I came. Uh, I served most recently for four years at North Decatur United Methodist Church, which is about a church about a mile and a half from Decatur First. And uh, in June, our bishop appointed me actually as senior pastor of both North Decatur and Decatur First. We've co- created a cooperative parish out of both of those churches to find ways for them to partner, uh, to do ministry together, and to see what will develop. So that's been an interesting wrinkle. Um, but I'm having fun with it. And before we get too far into it, since the folks listening to this are obviously podcast listeners, you host a podcast yourself. And so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the show that you host? And and uh, then as we get going, our, our users can surf around their podcast app and go ahead and subscribe to your show as well. Right on. Thanks. It's called On Church. Uh, two pastors talk about church. My friend Matt Lacey, who's a pastor in the North Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church, 
and I put an episode out every three or four weeks, and mostly it's a chance for us to remember that we're actual human beings, uh, curse a little bit and uh, do some <laughs> light bleeping <laughs> and talk about what happens under the hood. Are, are there any uh, good starter episodes or any episodes recently that you felt like would be a good introduction uh, for someone who's new? So we did uh, one called Money, 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 which I thought was helpful in terms of thinking through the challenges of dealing with money in church. The most recent one uh, that we did early in August was called The Denomination and Me, where we talked about how it is we talk about denominational happenings and denominational identity in the local church because there's a tension there. So yeah. I thought that was fairly interesting. That's awesome. Well, Art of the Sermon listeners, go over and find On Church and download an episode or two. And if you love it, go ahead and subscribe. Well, one of our first general questions for all of our guests is, what are your philosophies or approaches to preaching or communication in general? Maybe if you had a mission statement or guiding principle for yourself, what might it be? Yeah, so th- this is more of an image than a philosophy, but I like to have one foot in what is and one foot in what could be. One of my core beliefs about preaching is that if, if you just stand up there and speak truth and people aren't able to hear it, you're not actually preaching, mm. you're just talking. And so there, there's a certain amount of thinking through what integrity means that's required, because you want to stand up there and you want to speak truth, but you do have to... Uh, was it Emily Dickinson said, that said, uh, speak the truth, but, but tell it slant? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to speak things in ways um, that people can hear. As far as the way that I build my sermons, I realized a few months ago that they're almost all exactly the same. Um, it's basically, I start with, here's the problem in the world, because, I mean, the good news for the preacher is that there's plenty of those, so you'll never <laughs> run out of material. That's true. Um, so here's the problem. Here's what Scripture has to say about it. Here's how we can be faithful in the midst of that problem to what Scripture has to say about it. And then, sort of a, in a surprise, here's why that faithfulness is good for us. So it's less about, here's what we have to do simply because Scripture has the ultimate authority, but surprise, God actually knew what God was talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so here's why this is good for us. That's a, I love that. And, and one of the things there at the end is, you know, the goal of all preaching and all ministry and all worship is to ultimately bring God glory. But I think exactly. part of what brings God glory is when we realize God's great love for us. Uh, and so right. it's certainly not a, uh, not you're, you're not a prosperity gospel preacher like, here's the hard truth, and then you should do it because then your bank account will fill up. But it's more right. of, of recognizing God's grace and love for us. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm famous for in a stewardship sermon once saying, that the only thing God promises you if you give your money to the church is that you'll have less money. <laughs> but here's why that's a good thing and, and, and talking through it that way. That's really cool. Well, the episode that airs right before this one is with A.J. Thomas, who uh, we talk all about giving and stewardship, and then this episode comes out in the beginning of October. So uh, a lot of churches are going to traditionally be here at the front end of Stewardship Month, and so we're certainly thinking about all of you and praying for all of you during this uh, fun and difficult and challenging but really promising season. Well, uh, Dalton, I invited you on the show because, I number one, I've been wanting to have you on for a while and waiting for a really good kind of topic or something to come across uh, the radar. And recently you shared about the one-year anniversary of coming out of a spiritually dry season. And so why don't we start by just having you tell a little bit of your story over the last couple of years? 
Sure. So uh, in 2015, I was elected as a reserve delegate to the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, which is our uh, every it's our quadrennial uh, decision-making body. We basically come together every four years and decide what our house rules are going to be. And this uh, gathering was in Portland, Oregon, in 2016, in May of 2016. And I was excited. I was, you know, I was honored to have been elected. I was like 32 at the time, uh, which I think I was the youngest clergy to be elected in North Georgia this round and maybe in some years. So, it was, I mean, it was a real honor, and I was grateful for it. And then I got there, and it was a nightmare. Mm. You know, church meetings are not traditionally fun things. I mean, nobody goes to a church meeting willingly. I've never, yeah. I, I know very few folks who, who go to any church meetings willingly. But but there was just nastiness there. Not not only is the church in the midst of, of what feels like an intractable uh, division over uh, full inclusion of LGBTQ folk, but there just was there was underhandedness that was present. You know, there are payoffs to people. I mean, it's a it's a church meeting, but as I sometimes say, uh, church was perfect until we all walked in this morning, and yes. so it was full of people. It just was gross. And, and about halfway through that 10-day experience, I, I remember walking out of a committee meeting in which it just felt like the church was fracturing and people were acting sinfully, and I just crawled in the, like I climbed into the bleachers and I just wept. For an hour, I wept, and I'm not a crier. I just, I'm not a terribly emotional person. I'm passionate, but I, I just sat there and I wept, and it wasn't even like I knew quite what I was weeping for, other than maybe the death of what I thought church was supposed to be. It was just deeply, deeply, the whole process was broken, and it felt like it broke me. Mm. And the rest of the experience after after that 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 difficult day was no better. Um, one of our bishops said that it uh, it was as if we almost cut the church apart with a rusty knife. Yeah. Um, for me, it felt like we were swinging hammers at the glass bowl of the church rather than trying faithfully to find a way forward. And so that was it was a real struggle for me. I mean, I feel a little, I don't know, silly, nerdy for having such a, a low point happen in such a, like, I don't know, Methodisty way, <laughs> but it, it was it was really difficult. And I remember coming back from general conference and preaching the next Sunday and giving an update of what had happened and just saying to honestly in, in all honesty to the congregation, like this was awful, and I don't know what to do now, and I don't know what the church is going to do now. And at the time, I served a church. Um, I still, um, in some ways, serve that church that had a fair amount of LGBTQ folk in the congregation. And so I, I, it was tough for me to, to think through how to talk with them yeah. about what had happened. And so what was that sermon like? What, what did you end up telling your congregation uh, that Sunday? Uh, I reminded them that God loves them no matter how broken the church is. And I, I quoted James Howell, the pastor of Myers Park in Charlotte, who, um, who, who said, Remember, never forget the general conference is not the church, mm. which I was I was grateful for because there was very little church up in there. 
And so you go through this season and we'll we'll get in a little bit to how you you feel refreshed and how you've come out of that season. But when you were in the midst of that season, it's your job to get up and proclaim the good news, capital G, capital N, to proclaim the gospel, right. to proclaim a message of hope. And yet you're sitting there in anxiety, uh, frustration, uh, grief, and potentially even sort of lamenting the 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 damage that is coming down the road. How right. do you get up in the pulpit and be the the messenger of good news and hope when when this is weighing on your shoulders? Realizing you have to do it for a paycheck is one thing. <laughs> True. No, I, 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 Fred Craddock says that um, he said his prayer every morning for like fifty years was that uh, he was grateful for work that was more important than how he might happen to feel about it on a given day. Mm. And uh, I, I have returned to that prayer regularly because there, there have been plenty of times in my life when I haven't been feeling it. Um, and it's not that I feel like I've stood and said things I didn't believe, but I think I have understandings of belief that are uh, an understanding of the, the, the idea of belief that is, that is broader than just um, in words. Maybe this is a helpful, uh, helpful story. When I was uh, at Candler the preaching professor had a panel come in to talk about preaching during tragedy. And um, one of the pastors told the story of arriving at a church and very soon after having a significant number of the members of the most influential family in the church die in a plane crash mm. very soon after his arrival. And he talked about the, the funeral and he talked about preaching, uh, preaching it and that he stumbled through and it was fine. And he said he met with the family that was remaining uh, in the months after the service. And he said, so how was that experience for you? I know that must have been difficult. And they said it was very difficult, and we appreciate your sermon. But the thing that was the most powerful for us was when the congregation stood to say the Apostles' Creed. Mm. Because in that moment, we weren't able to believe, but it was as if our church community believed for us. And that's a really foundational story for me. I, I return to that, to hearing that story a lot, because um, there are days in which, you know, my kids hadn't slept the night before, uh, or I'm not feeling great, or something's weighing on my mind, in which I've got to stand up and realize that not everybody's kids didn't sleep the night before, <laughs> and not everybody has the same thing weighing on their mind. Yeah. And so to bring all of my stuff into the pulpit isn't terribly helpful. So I think having a broad understanding of what it means to have faith, uh, being grounded in Scripture and acknowledging that even within the canon there are different, uh, there are times in which the, the writers of Scripture feel differently about God. Sometimes they're really into religion and sometimes they're angry. And the fact that those feelings are written into the canon help me on days I'm just not feeling it. There's a quote that I'm, I'm thinking of. I think it might be Nadia Boltz-Weber. Someone said that we preach out of our scars, not out of our open wounds. Um, yeah, yeah. And how, how do you, how did you, or how might you in the future try to guard against just kind of dumping and releasing all the stuff that you're, you're going through when you get up to preach? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I, it took me a few weeks after that experience of General Conference to realize that I was sort of bleeding from the pulpit. Um, and I was bleeding in ways that, I thought, and in some ways still believe, have implications for the life of that worshiping community, but it was still bleeding, and that wasn't helpful. 
So um, I had to do a couple of things. One, I had to step back and sort of take stock of my life. I have a regular, uh, I have a standing biweekly appointment with a therapist, which is something I strongly recommend to everybody, particularly uh, professional religious people. Because uh, if I hadn't had that opportunity to be in regular relationship with him uh, and know someone who could basically call me on my stuff, then I wouldn't have been able to step back and say, what is it that's really causing this pain here? Is it, is it, you know, is it me or is this in the congregation? In this case, it was mostly me. Um, it also ha- help, helps to have a spouse, uh, one, who's in ministry, and two, who isn't afraid to tell me when I'm being an idiot. Um, mm-hmm. And so having, having friends and having relationships with folks who can kind of bring me out of myself are really helpful. That was also a season in which I rediscovered the power of spiritual disciplines, because hmm. I, I thought uh, at the time, like that, that family who was having trouble believing, I thought, let me, this is going to sound really high-minded, I don't mean for it to, but like, let me do the things that the giants have done over the years, let me do the things that sustain faith. And I found that to be deeply moving, because not only does it connect you with the great cloud of witnesses, I mean, those who have been and those who are and those who will be, but there's something, I don't know, tangible about, about the discipline, various disciplines, you know, traditional ones and even sort of new, different ones that, that, that help you engage faith in a deeper way or, or at least uh, help, help br- bring me out of however I might be feeling about things on a given day. And this, this question may be a, a little bit off the playing field that, that you were on at the time, but um, a while back we had on Science Mike as one of our guests, and we talked to him cool. about doubt and questioning, and uh, he, he said, you know, one of the, the things he appreciates about being a lay person, being a clergy person, is that uh, even though he speaks uh, to lots of, of people of faith and non-faith, and, and some people sort of view him in a pastoral-type role, you see, you know, I'm, I'm not ultimately accountable to a denomination or to a church or something, and so I can be open about my doubts, where if you're the, the pastor of a church, you're the leader of a church, and, and where I'm going with this is that spiritually dry seasons can happen for lots of reasons, um, sure. and the the systems we currently have set up maybe have room for those times where we're stressed out or we've gone through tragedy or where we're struggling with our understanding of the church but for those whose spiritually dry season is maybe based out of a crisis of faith or or a development of faith an evolution of their faith there's not always the time or space to step away and deal with that that's a whole bunch of concepts there that I just kind of want to throw into your lap and see see if you have any thoughts <laughs> Let me see what I can pick up. To the extent that I sometimes feel guilty as a religious person for having doubt, it's helpful for, you, for me to remember that, like, everybody does. And, um, you know, giants of the faith have doubt. I mean, <laughs> I, it's not lost on me that Jesus exclaimed from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Um, you know, if it was good enough for Jesus, I feel like I'm going to be okay living in that space for a bit. For me, the key is owning that reality, but not being owned by that reality. Mm. And, and finding ways within moments of doubt or, or worry or anxiety to, to, to see God at work, either within those moments or, or even in, in spite of them. 
And so it's helpful, I think, to be authentic. I think people appreciate that. You know, again, as long as you're preaching from your scars, not from your open wounds. The challenge is when you have religious leaders who have such crises of faith, I'm not talking about dry seasons, but such crises of faith that um, they end up not being able to say with integrity the things that they are charged with saying. Mm. Um, I remember there was a pastor in Canada who, like, wanted to keep her job as a pastor, even though she had decided that she was an atheist. And I'm a pretty, like, open person, (laughs) but I struggle a little bit with that, because while struggling within your faith and dealing with dry seasons is one thing, everybody does that, um, that seems like something of a different order. I would hope that denominations and church systems would, would allow for clergy to have sabbaticals when they need them, um, both proactively so that those dry seasons happen less, but also uh, when they come. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of structure needs to be built for that, but it strikes me that something has got to be, because the people I know who have the fewest dry seasons are the people who I think have the thinnest faith. Maybe that sounds, maybe that sounds terrible, but it strikes me that the people who don't struggle with faith, particularly in the world that is deeply broken, those folks aren't paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And I, I worry, I, I deeply worry about the kind of damage that can be done to a congregation when a pastor or a preacher is not willing to acknowledge that reality. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. And and uh, we're recording this just after the weekend of all the events in Charlottesville. And no doubt a lot of pastors, if not most of the pastors in our country, felt the need to say something on Sunday morning and, and perhaps through other channels. And then, of course, Monday morning, uh, brought the arguments on Twitter over whether certain people went far enough um, or whether just because your pastor didn't say anything, it doesn't mean that they support racists and things. And, and that sort of, you know, Twitter can be a really ugly place, <laughs> as, as ugly as some church meetings and, and sometimes worse. Um, but, but I do feel like there's certain times where you, you, have, you have to speak up uh, and, and, and you have to say something even if it doesn't go with what you were planning on saying um, that morning. And like you said, there's just certain things that, that happen that t- to ignore or to not respond to or to act as if everything's just going to be okay seems a little disingenuous. Well, it's completely disingenuous. It's divorced from reality. And it also doesn't do justice to what people in the pews are thinking. Yeah. I mean, those folks are, are watching the news just like you are. And they come to church to hear a good news. And the good news is in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm, I'm all for that. But the resurrection of Jesus has profound implications for the redemption of the world and for responding to the brokenness that we regularly see. So, I mean, the thing is that uh, it's always appropriate, in my mind, to address uh, difficult issues that happen in the world, because those issues are always related to the fact that Jesus will redeem the world. Uh, They're always related to the gospel. And I I, I hate, I I will say, I don't like it when people uh, say uh, that, um, you know, after a tragedy, but before a Sunday, like, pastors, if you don't 
respond to this. You're not being faithful because I just don't like people telling me what to say. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's a lost opportunity when you don't acknowledge the response of the gospel to the difficult events of the day, because then you act as if the gospel is not relevant to what's happening in the world, and the gospel is deeply relevant. Well, let's go ahead and bring some measure of resolution uh, as much as we can. Why don't you share with us a little bit about what brought you out of the dry season and how things have been since then, how your, your personal disciplines and, and spiritual life has been, and, and how your preaching life has been? Thanks. I think I'm tired of wallowing in that, <laughs> in that space. Yes, thank you for volunteering to be tribute for the downer episode. <laughs> wah, wah. I, um, so, so the strange thing about my story is that there, there are sort of bookends to it, and they both happened at church meetings. And I know, like, I, I'm feeling like such a nerd right now. Yeah. Nobody should ever come to my church again because I'm the least cool person there is. But <laughs> So if General Conference was honestly one of the, 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 the lowest points of my spiritual life, then there was a meeting that happened a couple of months later that really raised my spirit. So um, in the United Methodist Church, we have the General Conference, and then two months later, each of the jurisdictions, of which there are five in the United States, um, gathered to elect bishops. And in our tradition, bishops have an enormous amount of authority. They appoint pastors, and it's a very important meeting. And so I, before that meeting, I was not looking forward to it, remembering what had happened before. And there were some hijinks that happened before it as well. There were anonymous voter guides that went out. I mean, it's just it's politics. It's yeah. like American politics, um, except for it's supposed to be based on higher ideals. <laughs> and we, we started voting, and some amazing things happened. One is we elected my district superintendent at the time, who was the first woman of color in the southeastern jurisdiction ever to be elected a bishop in the United Methodist Church. Bishop Sharma Lewis, and it was a beautiful thing. Everybody was crying. I was crying. I mean, we're hugging. It was amazing. And then we went through the day, and we elected uh, two other very, very capable, faithful people, and then we got knotted up. And you have to, again, this is real nerdy, but you have to have 60% of the votes of all the delegates in the room in order to get elected a bishop. And we just couldn't quite get there. Like, every time there'd be one or two short out of, like, 500. And the people who were just on the cusp of getting elected were people who had been written about in some of those nasty anonymous voter guides in ways that were unfair and unhelpful. And we were about to take a break during the time we were knotted up. And just as we were about to take the break, I mean, just as we were about to take the break, the bottom dropped out of the sky and you couldn't even see out the window. Like it was an, an, an incredibly sudden out of nowhere rainstorm. And the presiding bishop at the time said, all right, well, it's time for the break. And people in the, in the conference who were voting started to say, no, no, we, want to, we don't want to take a break. Nobody wanted to get their hair messed up, I guess. <laughs> and he said, well, it's in the schedule. We got to do it. And then more people said, no, no, no. Um, well, the thing is that the break is usually when the like, power players gather under the shade trees and figure out how to maneuver the levers of power. But because everybody started protesting, they just, we just pushed right through, and we elected two really, really phenomenal new bishops, one of whom appointed me to Decatur first. And as I'm sitting here watching this in the midst of being troubled over the state of the denomination, I see, in spite of those, those hijinks, I see a really sweet spirit in the room 
and I see a rainstorm come out of nowhere just when we needed it. Now, I'm not a guy who's ever put a whole lot of value on the concept of providence. Yeah. I'm a Methodist, not a Presbyterian. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you sit back and you look over the events of that day. I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it. God was at work in ways that I had never seen happen before. I mean, that was a great a miracle. And so I, I have discovered in my own life that when I face dry seasons, this, this experience really taught me this, that one of the best things I can do is that even when I'm not feeling it, I need to keep my eyes open for God at work. Mm. Because God is at work even when I don't feel like God is at work. And, and I, I think back and think, if I hadn't been paying attention and hadn't noticed that, that moment, I would have missed one of the most incredible things I have seen in my entire life. And my God, it happened in a church meeting of all places. Wow. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one, uh, you can answer either side or both. What's one of your favorite or most challenging preaching experiences? I love preaching experiences that require me to work my way out of, uh, out of knots out of like tied up knots. Um, I love scripture that is deeply difficult because I think um, life is deeply difficult. And I like that scripture honors the difficulty we experience in life. And so those, those sermons don't always end up really pretty. They don't always end up with like one, they don't even necessarily end up with one take home wrapped in a bow sentence that you remember for the rest of your life. But if you remember that there's difficulty in Scripture, just like there's difficulty in life and God is there anyways, that's plenty take home, even if the preacher struggles to, you know, work his way out of a difficult situation. I love those, though. That's cool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not an answer that a ton of people are going to give, and so that's, that's really cool that that excites you. I could do something else that was easier. I, I like those situations because I'm interested by them. And uh, I'm certainly not bored by those challenges. I, I, I just don't like to be bored. And so if I can find something in Scripture that, that, that requires attention, then I, I love that. And I also think that um, it's worth that attention because I think people in the pews must be struggling with it, too. Well, do you prefer preaching Christmas Eve or Easter? Preaching Christmas Eve is really hard for me because— I'm not even sure, other than God is with us, which is a great message, like what you say on Christmas Eve, people don't really come to Christmas Eve for the sermon. They come to light candles, and then so they can get out and go eat, you know, <laughs> deviled eggs or whatever. Um, I, for me, Easter is it. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on that day, because everybody is there. Not that they're even there for the sermon that day either, but, but I... The concept of resurrection is one that, that has caught hold of my heart and won't, won't let go. And when I work with um, students or work with folks trying to get to the board of ministry, one of the things that I always ask them about is to tell me about what the implications of the resurrection are, not just in terms of going to heaven when you die, but in terms of life here now. Beekner talks about uh, the fact that the, the, the worst thing ever to happen to you will not be the last thing ever to happen to you. Yeah. And that gives me a great deal of hope. And so I, I love resurrection, and I love finding ways to surprise people into realizing that it has implications beyond life, beyond death. Who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? 
So I mentioned Fred Craddock and um, Frederick Buechner. Um, I just like people named Fred. Um, <laughs> Craddock was helpful to me. I'm not a storyteller. I'm really not. But I, I like that um, Craddock's use of, of, of narrative psychology, even if he's not really uh, intentional about that. Um, I love his use of surprise. Yeah. Because I think that surprise is one of the most underused tools in the preacher's tool belt. If you can surprise somebody into something, you have, you've caught hold of them and you will, I mean, you could change their lives. Um, instead of just getting up and saying the usual thing, if you can say, well, let me show you the surprise that's in the gospel, man, that's powerful. For me, the thing about Beekner is just the, the beauty of his language. Barbara Brown Taylor does this too. I'm not a manuscript preacher. I used to be, and I gave up uh, notes sometimes back uh, because I thought it helped, maybe not the quality of my sermons, but it helped my, uh, I don't know, evangelistic presence. My, it helped my authenticity. Hmm. But even then, there are some lines that, some, some truths about God that you have to couch in beautiful language or you're not honoring those truths about God. Yeah. And they need to feel authentic, particularly if you're not using a manuscript. But I, I really appreciate um, Beekner's use, use of language. And then the last thing I'd say is stand-up comedians. I love stand-up <laughs> comedy. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fairly funny person. I think I could say that. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's, the, it's the use. It's both the use of surprise that, that, that helps jokes to land it's not even that I like want to learn jokes to tell in sermons. It's I want to know how stand-up comedians use surprise to tell jokes, but also how they can be so plainly honest yeah. um, and say things that people can hear only when they're told with a laugh. Yeah, I, so I want true. to be able to do that because we're as preachers, we're stewards of very, very um, rich and sometimes difficult truths. Do you have any favorite stand-up comedians or folks you feel do that well? Uh, so um, I, I love uh, Mitch Hedberg. I saw him several times before he <laughs> died. And one of the things I love about Mitch Hedberg is, is he will point out just the ridiculous nature of everyday life yeah. in, in ways I just wish I could do. Um, I also love Lewis Black partly because he can say things with a righteous anger that reminds me of the prophets, but also reminds me that I probably need to not say it that way. <laughs> But 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 there's there's truth in what he shares, and and I'm, I'm I appreciate that. Well, are there any books, podcasts, or other resources that you might recommend our audience check out? Um, I think this one's great. I've enjoyed uh, following uh, what you're doing, Dan. Thank um, you. I, I I found um, podcasts are helpful. I, I sort of pick and choose episodes based on. I don't know what struggles I'm feeling. Yeah. Rainer on Leadership's great. The Established Church podcast is great. Carrie Newhoff is great. Um, as far as books go, I, I love, again, I'm not a manuscript guy anymore, but I love The Preaching Life by Barbara Brown Taylor just because it helps me understand what I'm doing in the context of larger ministry and of the world and reminds me that the preacher's job, the, the preacher is no more important than anybody else. But the preacher's job is deeply important because it can steward the life of the church, which in the final analysis is the most important thing in the whole world. And so I, I, I appreciate that because so often preaching for me feels like I'm lost in the weeds. So being pulled out of that is helpful. And then um, there's a book called Preaching Without Notes by Joseph Webb, which is a very practical book. Um, that was really helpful for me because I 
I'm, I'm a pretty good writer. And I, I always said, I will always be a manuscript preacher because I am so <laughs> in love with precise language. Yeah. But reading some, some commentary from Kerry Newhoff and then reading um, Webb's book about preaching without notes really convinced me that I needed to get over myself because so much of my um, care about precise language was about me and my own baggage. And so I like, I like finding ways to share the gospel outside of only that precise language, but, but in, in, in broader strokes. And so that book was helpful for me. And lastly, if there are folks out there that want to get in touch and say hi or follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? So we post uh, my podcast uh, when we do it, and I post uh, other things occasionally on my uh, blog, which is just daltonrushing.com. You can email me at uh, dalton.rushing at ngumc.net. That's North Georgia United Methodist Church, ngumc.net. Thanks, Dalton. We really appreciate your time today. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you as a guest. Feelings mutual. I'm grateful. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.